Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Halibut people and our world. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Thanks for joining us. Here's what the Jesuits wrote about the Mi'kmaq diet. In January, they have the seal hunting. For this animal, although it is aquatic, nevertheless spawns upon certain islands about this time. Its flesh is as good as veal, and furthermore, they make of its fat an oil, which serves them as sauce throughout the year. They fill several moose bladders with it, which are two or three times as large and strong as our pig bladders, and in these you see their reserve casks. Thanks to Jason Benoit for that, from BenoitFirstNation.ca. There was another demonstration in Cornerbrook this week in advance of more than 100,000 letters being sent out by the feds telling us who's Indian and who's not. The demo ended at the office of Long Range Mountains MP Goody Hutchings. The MP was out when the demonstrators arrived. The participants included our chief, Brendan Mitchell, who agrees that the Supplemental Agreement of 2013 is a flawed document and needs to be renegotiated. But the Government of Canada is not responding. It seems that legal action against the government, and probably the Halibut Band, is inevitable. We've been there before, in 2015, when thousands of applications were turned down for technical reasons, such as failure to tick the right box. The lawyer who will be handling that litigation on behalf of the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland is our guest on Mi'kmaq Matters today. Jamie Lickers is a partner in the national law firm Gowlings and is based in Hamilton, Ontario, not far from where she grew up on the Six Nations Reserve. I talked to Jamie about her past work on behalf of Mi'kmaq people and about what form she thinks the new legal action will take. I'm here with Jamie Lickers, a partner with the Gowlings National Law Firm. Jamie is located in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, has been uh, active on uh, Mi'kmaq matters, Halibut matters, previously, and probably will be again once the, uh, those letters come out at the end of the month. So, Jamie, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Let me ask you first about your own your own uh, background. You're a First Nations person from Six Nations, I understand. That's that's correct. I I grew up in my my home community of of Six Nations, and I still have um, very strong ties with my community. Most of my my family continues to to reside in in Six Nations, and um, yeah, I play an active role in my community. And I I was there until I went off to university and and law school, which seems like many years ago now. Right. And Hamilton, of course, is not so far from uh, Six Nations. You're st- so you're, you're still pretty close by. I am. I am. And that's that's why I work out of our Hamilton office. It's it's great that Gowlings has a Hamilton office. It allows us to have um, stronger ties with, with a lot of the Indigenous communities in southern Ontario. Tell us about the kind of Aboriginal law cases you work on, because I understand that's your that's that's the uh, all or at least the bulk of your work. It is, it is, and you know, I'm I'm so lucky to to work for a firm like Gowling WLG. Um, not a lot of national firms have extensive Indigenous law practices, and and Gowling WLG has 
I think it's still it's still accurate to say that we have the the largest indigenous law practice um, in Canada, larger in our in our internal group that practices indigenous law is is larger than most boutique law firms that specialize in this area, and it gives us the opportunity to work on cases that might not come to someone um, without the the size of of this type of a national law firm. So I've been very lucky throughout my career to work on really important um, Indigenous legal cases. Um, Most recently, our firm was at the Supreme Court of Canada on on the Chippewas of the Thames versus Enbridge matter, which um, dealt with the question of, you know, to what extent um, administrative uh, legal tribunals need to engage and consult with with Indigenous communities before making decisions that have the potential to to impact their rights. And then, not long before that, we were we were involved in in the Daniels case at the Supreme Court, which. Most people who follow Indigenous legal issues are, are aware of the Daniels case, but a pretty profound ruling from the court about federal government and constitutional responsibility for for Métis and, and non-status Indians. Mm-hmm. And you've you've also been to federal court on behalf of Mi'kmaq people trying to become uh, Halibut members. Uh, tell us about that case. I have, I have. There were two cases actually back in in 2015. Um, you'll, you'll recall that before the Enrollment Committee had this deadline to consider all of the outstanding applications for membership in, in the Halibut Band, that they, um, they reviewed applications on what I will call sort of a preliminary basis to see if, if the applications included all of the necessary information and if they had, the applicants had, you know, checked the right boxes and, and signed the right places on the application form. Very administrative, uh, technical requirements having nothing to do with the actual eligibility criteria in, in the um, agreement for the recognition of the band. And a number of people were actually um, denied band membership and and their Indian status as a result of failing to meet these very technical procedural requirements. So there were a couple of thousand applicants who were who were rejected for, for example, failing to send in a copy of their long form birth certificate. There were a couple thousand people who were also rejected from from the band for signing or failing to sign the release statement in the application form. And I mean, we're talking about an application that leads to and makes a decision regarding someone's status and status as an Indian in, Indian in Canada and their member of a band and their identity, really. Um, and, and with that comes constitutional rights and constitutional obligations of the federal government. So we just we thought that it was outrageous that people would be denied their access to those rights and, and to membership in their community on the basis that they forgot to sign a form or forgot to send in a birth certificate. So so we challenged those decisions and, and we were successful on those cases. And even though there were two individual plaintiffs, the the new government, uh, the Liberal government, decided to apply the ruling to all applicants, even though there were just two individual litigants. That's right. That's right. So the way that judicial review applications work is that you have to file an application to the court 
and, and really you're asking the court to decide whether a particular decision is reasonable or not. And so you have to challenge the individual decisions. And we took quite some time working together with the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland to identify two individuals who we, we thought had pretty strong cases um, to entitlement to band membership and Indian status that were rejected on the basis of those uh, technical irregularities in their applications. And so the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of, of Newfoundland actually funded in large part those claims which went forward on behalf of those two individuals. Um, uh, they were uh, Mr. House and, and Mr. Foster. So when the decisions were rendered by the federal court, those decisions only specifically legally applied to Mr. House and to Mr. Foster. Now, of course, we made the argument that after a federal court tells you that your process is unfair, it's very difficult to stand behind the other thousands of decisions that were made on the same basis. And so the federal government made the right decision, in our view, in extending those decisions to other applicants who had been rejected on the same basis. Now, the, the other interesting thing about that case is who the respondents were, i.e. who the parties were in court who had, to def who had to defend themselves. And one of the respondents was the Federation of, of Newfoundland Indians, which is the, in some ways the forerunner of the, uh, the, the Halibu uh, Mi'kmaq First Nation. The FNI was in court, and tell us what position it was taking in that uh, federal court case. You know, I have to say I was I was quite surprised by a couple of, of positions that were taken by the Federation of Newfoundland Indians on, on those cases. We obviously had no no choice but to name them as a respondent as, as they are um they are a party to the agreement that recognized the band. So when when we received their their written materials um which outlined the arguments that they would be making in court, the first thing that really caught my attention was that in order to judicially review a decision in legal terms, you can't review just any decision. I, I couldn't have my a decision that my boss makes about my work reviewed in, in federal court. It has to be a decision that is made by a federal board, a federal commission, or a federal tribunal. And that's a that's a defined term in a piece of legislation. What it really means is this has to be, a, in essence, a, a government decision. And the, and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, through their legal counsel, took the position that the Enrollment Committee, which was created under the Agreement for the Recognition of the Band, that they were not a federal board, commission, or tribunal, but that really they were um, a board that was created by a private agreement between two parties, so the federal government and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, and that as a result, their decisions were not subject to um, to oversight by the federal court, um, and we, we thought that position was untenable in, in law. I mean, it, it would be akin to the federal government picking a few random individuals um, off the street to say, you now get to decide who's a band member and who's entitled to Indian status in Canada, and with that comes constitutional rights. It, it's crazy that that authority would be delegated by the federal government to something other than a federal board commission or tribunal. And was the FNI position in agreement with the federal government position that these people who had forgot to tick a box and did not uh, include a law form uh, birth certificate should not have their applications considered? Well, their, their positions diverged on a, on a couple of, of key points. 
The federal government did not take such an explicit position on the Enrollment Committee being a private body. Um, I think they knew that that, uh, that argument was not going to be successful in court, and ultimately it was, it was not successful. The court found that the Enrollment Committee was acting as a federal board commissioner tribunal, which then allowed them, of course, to proceed with, with reviewing their decisions. And, but both parties did take the position on those judicial reviews that, that the decisions that were made by the Enrollment Committee were reasonable, that they were not um, unfair or inequitable or unconstitutional. And, um, you know, we, we aggressively disagreed with that position. The fact that these individuals, their, the evaluation of their applications would determine their membership and their band and their status potentially as Indians protected by the Constitution, um, the fact that they weren't even notified that there were deficiencies in their applications, they weren't even given an opportunity to correct those deficiencies, uh, that didn't seem fair to us. It didn't seem equitable. Now, because of uh, your victory in that case, uh, those applicants did have their their applications considered, and they will be among the more than 100,000 letters uh, coming out at the end of the month about uh, the fate of uh, existing Halapu Band members and, and applicants. So when those letters come out, what will you be watching for in terms of numbers, what's included in the letters, appeal process perhaps? What, what will be the live issues for you as these things unfold? Right. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the letters say when they come out. And there is a, there is a hard deadline, but letters could start coming out today or tomorrow for that matter. They just have to be out by a certain day. So we're sort of waiting day to day to see when people start receiving their letters, most of which we're, we're pretty certain will be rejection letters. For, from our perspective, the most important thing in the letters will be the basis on which these applications are denied. And of course, they're going to relate back to the eligibility criteria that is outlined in the recognition agreement. But I think it will be interesting to see if, as we were with the foster and the house cases, are we dealing with um, very short one-page standard form letters where the enrollment committee has checked a box to say, we regret to inform you that your application has been denied for the following reason, and then there's a particular box checked that says either you failed to demonstrate that you have Mi'kmaq ancestry or you failed to, to show that you have a connection with a Mi'kmaq group in Newfoundland or you failed to prove to us that you self-identified on the relevant date. Or will it be more detailed than that? Will they provide any sort of an evaluation of the evidence that was submitted by each applicant and will they go into detail as to why that failed to meet the requirements. So that's what we're waiting to see. I don't think we'll see any specific information in the letters about the appeal process. We might, there might be a reference to, to the agreement because that process is already laid out in the agreement itself in terms of how you appeal the decision of the Enrollment Committee. Now, if, if legal action arises in response to these letters, and I think everyone assumes that it will in some way, shape, or form, uh, who would be the applicant? Who would be the suing? Would, would it be the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland? Would it be individual applicants? Would it be a class action? What, what form would litigation take, do you think? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. And I think the first, uh, the first 
point that needs to be made, which is important for all applicants and for band members who may lose their status as band members and their status as, as Indians under the Indian Act, is that um, the applicants themselves will be required to exhaust their legal remedies. And so that means following the appeal procedure that is outlined in the agreement. It also potentially means um, protesting the decisions under the Indian Act. And that would apply specifically to individuals who lose their band membership and their status as opposed to the applicants who never had membership or Indian status. Under the Indian Act, when an individual's name is removed from the Indian Register, that individual can protest the decision, and they have a certain time period for, for launching that protest. If an individual tried to go to court in advance of using the appeal procedure in the agreement and in advance of, of using those protest provisions, if they tried to bring a judicial review application, for example, the court might say that the judicial review application is premature and that they should have used their remedies under the agreement and under the Indian Act. So that's the first step of the process. But I think there are a host of, of bigger issues involved in this particular case, which may be outside the reach of any individual who decides to launch a judicial review application. The, the criteria itself, I think, is misplaced. And the federal government and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians have publicly stated that the eligibility criteria was based on the Powley decision from the Supreme Court. But the Powley decision dealt with de determining criteria for individuals with Métis heritage to exercise Métis rights. That criteria was not developed and not intended to be used in the context of determining membership. So we've seen how the use of that criteria, which for, was for a specific purpose, and implanting it into the context of membership and decisions regarding Indian status, we see how problematic that has become. The concept of using uh, community acceptance as a criteria for membership in Indian status is highly problematic. And it's not necessarily a criteria that is used to determine band membership and Indian status as it relates to other indigenous groups in this country. So it's, it's very specific to the Halibu band. And I think there's a problem there. So it sounds like uh, based on uh, people having to uh, exhaust these other procedures before they go to court that the the appeal measures, uh, uh, court cases and otherwise, will take some time. So these are going to be very lengthy, lengthy matters. Some time will have to pass before people can actually go to court uh, while they're exhausting these these internal procedures. It will definitely be a lengthy process. It, that's not to say that those two things cannot happen simultaneously. Um, individuals can launch their appeal and their protest under the Indian Act, while these larger issues of the constitutionality of, of the eligibility criteria itself, while that is dealt with in, um, at a higher level. There's all sorts of issues here. I mean, we have issues with, does this uphold the honor of the crown? Does the way in which this whole process has been developed and implemented 
does it meet that standard that the courts have said for the last decade when dealing with Indigenous people in Canada? The honour of the Crown is always at stake. And applicants to the Halapu Band do not feel that they have been treated in a way that is fair and equitable. It is, it's been publicly acknowledged that based on the application of the eligibility criteria as it stands right now, it is possible and in fact probable that siblings could end up having different status. Mm. Siblings with the same ancestral connection who both live in Newfoundland, who have the same history and the same practices, based only on the date on which they applied for, for band membership, one sibling could be granted status and one sibling could be denied. And that, to me, cannot be an equitable, it is not an equitable or a fair result. Mm. And, and what would be the, so the federal court would be the forum for the, for the court to challenge, and where would the Geographically, which where would the federal court be sitting? Uh, do you think if it if it eventually got to hear the matter? Right, that's an interesting question. The it, it's always a, a a decision of you know what's convenient for the parties and and what makes most sense when it it comes to the the question of where you commence litigation. In terms of the the Foster and the House Judicial Review applications, those were commenced at the federal court in Ottawa. The contract was negotiated between the federal government, which primarily sits in, in Ottawa, and the Federation of, of Newfoundland Indians, obviously. Um, this situation might, might be a bit different, particularly for the judicial review applications if individuals decide to commence their own judicial reviews. But there's always a question of judicial economy, and I don't think it matters where precisely these, these actions are launched. I think it's going to garner a significant amount of of probably national media attention. Indeed. Jamie, thanks for filling us in. Uh, no doubt there'll be lots to talk about once we get the letters and events unfold. So thank you for the work on behalf of Mi'kmaq people and um, we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Glenn. It's my pleasure. Jamie Lickers, lawyer for the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening to Mi'kmaq Matters. Thanks to Allison Baker for our technical assistance here in the studio. Thanks also to Halibut artist Marcus Goss for permission to use Celebration Time. Follow us on Twitter at Mi'kmaq Matters. That's M-I-Q-M-I-Q Matters. Check us out online, mi'kmaq-matters.blogspot.ca. Listen on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. This is Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.